Well, as, uh, as Jacob mentioned, this will be uh, the last uh, message in my series on the social justice revolution. So after this, every single question that you could possibly ever ask, no, it, it, it won't be that. Uh, but what, uh, what I want to do this morning uh, is look at how are we to, to respond uh, to this new worldview uh, that has burst onto the scene. Uh, back in, in 1976, uh, the, the Christian theologian uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, How Should We Then Live? Uh, and the subtitle to that book is The Rise and Decline of, of Western Thought and Culture. And, and in that book, Schaeffer gives a, a historical overview uh, of Western thinking, Western religion, uh, and philosophy from the Roman Empire to the time of his writing uh, in 1976. Uh, and uh, the premise of the book was to express his concern that the church was drifting, uh, that it was beginning to become like the culture, that it was beginning to adopt and, and bring in uh, the, the cultural way of thinking rather than sticking to the Scriptures as the source of truth. Uh, and Schaefer was warning against uh, the, the church accepting a humanistic way of thinking. Uh, in that humanistic way of thinking, as he explains it, is the idea that what we have in uh, the Scriptures is just a truth, but not the truth. Uh, and that's what he was writing to address back in 1976. And he says this uh, at the end of the book. He says, If we ourselves bear the central mark of our generation, we cannot at this moment in history be the voice we should be to our poor and fractured generation. We cannot be the restorative salt which Christians are supposed to be to their generation and their culture if in regard to the Scriptures, we too are marked by this existential methodology." That's the the term that he was using about this humanistic way of thinking. Uh, And what what Schaefer was uh, addressing as uh, just little seeds of thought back in 1976, uh, this is what I have been addressing as full-blown trees uh, right now in in 2020. Uh, And indeed, nearly all of the the harmful cultural ideas that I've addressed in this series uh, are addressed in that book uh, that was written 44 years ago. Think about that. All of the, the ideas of ideological social justice uh, go way back. This is, this is not something that has immediately just burst onto the scene. It feels that way, but it's been uh, percolating underneath for quite some time. Uh, and the, the title of, of Schaefer's book, How Should We Then Live?, I think a great way to, to wrap this series up because he, he chose to title the book with a question. How do we respond to all of this? What do we do now in a, in a culture that is growing more and more hostile towards Christ, more and more hostile to, to anyone who would follow Christ, and more and more hostile to uh, the organized church? And how, how can we then live uh, in a culture uh, that is uh, in all-out rebellion against God? And how are we to move forward uh, swimming upstream uh, against the, the current uh, of our culture? Uh, it feels like the, the current is growing stronger each and every day. Uh, what, do we do to, what are we to do in response? Well, these are not new questions. And I'd like you to, 
to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And the teaching of Christ found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 uh, are maybe the the most well-known of all of Jesus' teachings. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, known as the the Sermon on the Mount, might be the most studied passage of Scripture in uh, the entire Bible. Uh, And it may be uh, portions of it that that even unbelievers are familiar with, especially uh, Matthew 7, uh, verse 1 and following of, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Uh, But uh, this, this sermon... Uh, the last three chapters uh, is very profound, uh, and and the the topic of this sermon uh, is the idea of what what are kingdom citizens uh, to be and to do. Uh, what does it look like to live as a citizen in Christ's kingdom? Uh, and this sermon uh, gains its title from the setting of the sermon found in chapter five, verse one. Says, seeing the crowds, he, speaking of Jesus, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then Jesus begins the sermon. And uh, the very next portion you're probably also familiar with, verses 2 through 12, uh, is known as the Beatitudes. But really, what is described in the Beatitudes is the character of kingdom citizens. Now, if you are a citizen in Christ's kingdom, this is what should characterize you. Verse 2 says, And he opened his mouth and, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you... When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So reading that, we we see what what characterizes those who are in Christ's kingdom is a a brokenness a poverty they we see and recognize our uh, spiritual destituteness uh, and we look to Christ to save us to reconcile us we we are understanding how serious our sin is against a holy god and we grieve and we mourn and we will be comforted as we continue to to read there verses Verses 10 through 12 are rapidly becoming not just words on a page, but our uh, future and present experience. But after describing the the character of kingdom citizens uh, in the Beatitudes, uh, then Jesus moves on to a different topic. He begins to address the calling of kingdom citizens. So if this is what uh, who kingdom citizens are, now what is it we are supposed to, to do? 
What is it we are supposed to, to be in this world? And that's what he addresses in verses 13 through 16, which is ultimately where I'd, uh, I'd like to, to study this morning. And if you're there, read along with me. So immediately following, speaking about persecution and our blessedness in that state, he says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So in these verses, Jesus is, is teaching his disciples. Now, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, Jesus is going to be addressing his disciples in this sermon. Yes, the crowds are there. The, the crowds have flocked to Christ. But this is for those who are citizens in Christ's kingdom. This is for those who are following him. And Jesus is going to tell them what they are to be and what they are to do. And as we look at what Jesus is calling us to be and do, we'll we'll see how to live faithfully for Christ. Uh, And the principles that he's going to lay out here uh, were true for the early church in the Roman Empire when they were being harassed and persecuted and and hauled off uh, and having their property seized and then being taken into the Colosseum and executed. It was true for them, and these same principles are going to be true for us in the 21st century. No, we're not being hauled off to jail or or execution. But we are beginning to see a cultural hostility. And these principles that we're going to see in these verses will give us direction when we need it most right now. So I want to look at this text and, and see what our calling is as citizens in Christ's kingdom. And I want to begin by looking at verse 13, where we're going to see what we are called to be. And I would state it this way, that we are called to be preservatives in a fallen world. What Jesus means in verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And this is a very, very concise and simple statement, right? It's one that that sticks in our memory that you are the salt of the earth become a, a common phrase to, to use to refer to, uh, to, to people who are good, homegrown people. But that's not what Jesus is, is speaking of and meaning here. It begins, uh, first and foremost, by, by uh, something to take note of in our English translations, is that the you is plural. It's y'all. So speaking of every single Christian, not just some Christians, but, but you all. 
Additionally, it's also emphatic in the Greek. Uh, And so by placing the emphasis upon you or y'all, the emphasis is to the extent that you and you alone, that that you only, it's really profound what Jesus is saying here, that, that Christians alone are the salt of the earth. There's an emphasis here. What does it mean that we are the salt of the earth? Uh, and, and this statement has, has clear implications for what Christians are to be. And before we, before we jump to those, there's also an implication about what the world is. Okay? It's a clear statement about Christians that, that you all are the salt of the earth. But there's also something implied about the earth. And when Jesus speaks of the earth, he's not speaking of the, the, the ground beneath our feet, which I know is very cold right now. Uh, but, but he is speaking about the inhabitants in the earth. He's speaking about people. Uh, and in saying that Christians are the salt of the earth, he is implying that the earth, the, the, the humanity, the people, the inhabitants of this world are in need of of preservation that they are in need because there is a a rottenness to humanity the idea is that humanity as a whole is like a piece of meat that has a tendency to become putrid and defiled right you've all opened up the the refrigerator the lunch meat drawer and you've pulled it out you look at it it's kind of iffy you say, mom or wife, what, smell this, or uh, does this smell okay? You all know what meat looks like that has been around a little bit too long. That's what Jesus is, is saying here. That our world is fallen. And it has a tendency towards decay. And yet our world regularly denies this, Right? Our culture believes uh, a lie that because we continue to grow in knowledge, we continue to grow in goodness. Okay? That we have more knowledge at our fingertips right now uh, than any past generation. And what do we tend to, to do is we tend to, to elevate ourselves. We think because we have all of this knowledge that we are better than every previous generation. Love what... One leading magazine said that that Americans tend to see themselves as potential saints rather than real-life sinners. Great statement there. Another magazine said this, that today's young radicals in particular are almost painfully sensitive to wrongs of their society and they denounce them violently. But at the same time, they are typically American in that they fail to place evil in its historic and human perspective. To them, evil is not an irreducible component of man. It is not an inescapable fact of life, but something committed by the older generation, attributable to a particular class or the establishment and eradicable through love or revolution. What's amazing is that sounds a lot like the, the ideology of social justice that we've been talking about in this series. But that quote that I just read is from a Time magazine article from December 5th, 1969. The world denies its rottenness, but Jesus assumes it. 
and he begins to build upon it. And he makes this statement that Christians and Christians alone are the salt of the earth. But what does that really mean that we are the salt of the earth? What is he saying? He uses this, this word picture of, of salt because he is pointing to the natural function that salt has as a purifying agent and as a preservative. That's what salt does. Salt has a negative function in whatever it is placed in. What do I mean by that? Well, it's placed in food, and what does salt do in that food? It kills the bacteria. It stops the bacteria from from growing. It slows down the decaying process. And when I say that salt has a negative function, I don't mean that it does something bad, but that it stops something or slows something down from happening. So in one sense, it works negatively, but it has a positive effect. And when Jesus says that Christians are the salt of the earth, he is saying that those who are characterized by the Beatitudes, those who are characterized and are citizens of his kingdom, that we will be the salt of the earth. We will be that purifying and preserving agent in the world around us that will prevent the world from being as rotten as it could and should be. And salt works as a preservative in this way because it is fundamentally different from whatever it is placed in. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, Salt is essentially different from the medium in which it is placed, and in a sense it exercises all its qualities by being different. The very character of saltness proclaims a difference, for a small amount of salt in a large medium is at once apparent. Unless we are clear about this, we have not even begun to think correctly about the Christian life. The Christian is a man who is essentially different from everybody else. He is as different as the salt is from the meat into which it is rubbed. We as Christians, if we are salt, we are called to be fundamentally different from the culture and the world around us. So think of it this way. When, when a Christian enters the break room at work, what happens? The, the dirty joke that was being told suddenly get, gets dropped before the punchline. Right? Uh, Maybe the the whole demeanor in the air uh, changes. And sometimes maybe jokes uh, and little harassment will be thrown your way as a Christian. But but that's the idea. As soon as uh, a Christian walks into a room, his presence or her presence there has a preserving effect. It it changes the demeanor and the communication and the, the actions of everybody who is present. The great story told by Woodrow Wilson that he once went into a barber shop. And he says this, I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a powerful personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut and sat in the chair next to me. And every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least didactic, showed a personal interest in the person who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware that I had attended an evangelistic service. 
because Mr. D.L. Moody was in that chair. And I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the barbershop. They talked in undertones. They did not know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt that I had left that place as I should have left a place of worship. About that. That is what it looks like to be salt in this world. Fundamentally different. Functioning as a preservative, as a purifying agent. And in the, in the next section, in verses 14 through 16, we are told that we are also light. And in that section, there's also a command that if we are light, we are commanded to shine. But what's interesting here, we are told that we are salt, but we're not given a corresponding command to preserve or to purify. All that we are given is a warning about what happens to salt if it loses its saltiness. If you look at the, the second half of verse 13, now if salt loses its taste, what is it good for? The implication is nothing. Might as well just throw it on the ground to be, to be trodden. It's of no value. It's of no worth. And the implication is this. If we as Christians, if we as the church become exactly like the world and the culture around us, we are no longer able to preserve. We are no longer able to purify. We are no longer to have a ministry in the world if we are exactly like the world. We must be altogether different, altogether unique, holy. And so I would ask, do you conceive of yourself in that way? Do you see that you have a responsibility to be salt in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your own families as you gather for for Christmas and, and holiday gatherings this month? Do you conceive of the responsibility that you have, that Jesus says, you are this? Are you willing to embrace that? I'll quote Martin Lloyd-Jones again. He says, the Christian is not only to be different, he is to glory in this difference. He is to be as different from other people as the Lord Jesus Christ was clearly different from the world in which he lived. And the Christian is a separate, unique, outstanding kind of individual. There is to be in him something which marks him out and which is to be obvious and clearly recognized. Then he says, let every man examine himself. Sobering. Christ gives us this mandate, this mission to be salt in the world. We are called to be preservatives in a fallen and corrupt world. And then secondly, gives a a similar illustration, but it's going to be have a slight nuance to it. We are called to be preservatives in a fallen world, and then what is it we are called to do? 
We are commanded to shine as lights in the darkness. This is seen in verses 14 through 16. Jesus begins that section with a very similar statement. He says, you are the light of the world. And again, the, the, the previous statement, you are the salt of the earth, that's going to emphasize being. That's going to emphasize who we are. This statement is going to emphasize doing, what we are called to do as Christians. And in a similar manner as the previous statement, there is a very clear statement of fact about who Christians are and what we are called to do. But there's also an implication about the world. Right? If we are to, to be the lights of the world, what does that mean about the world? That the world is characterized by darkness. And no matter where Christians find themselves, no matter where they have lived on the earth, no matter when they have lived across history, this has always been true. That we have lived in a world characterized by darkness and we are called to live as lights. All of these uh, implications are echoed. In the previous verse, the earth's corruption is emphasized. Here, the darkness is emphasized. Because the world is full of darkness and corruption, Christians function as lights in the world. And again, that emphasis is made. That you, y'all, you only, you alone are lights in the world. And then Jesus emphasizes that Christians must not hide our light by giving two examples. First one is the city being set on a hill. Because you can't hide that. By day, the city becomes obvious uh, because of just the outline of the buildings and its uh, prominent location. And by night, when the lights come on and the fires are burning, the electricity uh, is turned on, it's obvious to see. You can go out here at nighttime and look up at Bogus Basin and see the lights from the ski resort. There's no hiding it. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can't hide a city on a hilltop. And you must not hide the light that is in you as a Christian. Because you are the light of the world. Second illustration that he gives is the use of a light in a household. Right? You don't light a candle uh, and then cover it up under a basket. Right? We don't do that, to put a modern term on it. Uh, you don't turn on the lights and then leave the room, although my three-year-old son loves to do that. So sometimes all the dads are like, turn the electricity off. But, but, that, but that's not what light is intended to do. You might as well just leave the, uh, the candle unlit if you're going to light it and then cover it in a basket because it doesn't provide any light to anyone else. And that's what Jesus is, is saying. He uses that illustration of a, of a, a light set in a house which also points to Christ has placed us in our community to shine as lights for him. And he hasn't placed us here so that we could cover and hide ourselves. He's placed us here to give light to our community, to be seen and identified by those around us, and to function as light shining in the darkness. 
One pastor, I love how he states this, he, he has this list of how salt differs from light. And we have the, these two commands that, that are similar, and yet there's, there's nuances that differentiate them. He says this, whereas salt is hidden, light is obvious. Now, salt works secretly, while light works openly. Salt works from within, light works from without. Salt is more the indirect influence of the gospel, while light is more direct communication. Salt works primarily through our living, while light works primarily through what we teach and preach. Salt is largely negative. It it can retard corruption, but it cannot change corruption into incorruption. But light is more positive. It not only reveals what is wrong and false, but helps to produce what is righteous and true. And what's amazing is that when darkness grows, even the smallest source of light is made more visible. Right? You might have had that experience as, as you walk through your house uh, in the darkness of night. Do you ever suddenly see all of these lights from electronic devices and things that are plugged in behind something else? Uh, and you're like, huh, what is, what is that light? Or you, you lay down to, to, to put your head on your pillow and you're like, there's a light in this room and I need to figure out where it's coming from and unplug it. Uh, but, but things that you would never notice in the daytime are immediately obvious and will keep you awake at night. Because in that darkness, the light becomes more and more visible. It's it said that on a dark night, a single candle can be visible from, with a naked eye a mile and a half away. And if you have just a basic set of binoculars, that same candle will be visible ten miles away. And you think about uh, on, a, on a, a night where there's not a whole bunch of light pollution from the city, how many stars can you see? And how far away are those stars? Millions of light years away. That is the power of light shining in the darkness. And in verse 16 here, we are given a command. That if if we are lights... The command is that we must shine. This isn't optional. But what are we often tempted to do? We're often tempted to to put a little asterisk next to this command, right? That I, I will be a light for Christ at my church where all of the other lights are shining too. And it's really easy. No. We are commanded to let our light shine. And, and sometimes we grow fearful. And we cover up our, our light. Sometimes we grow indifferent. We don't care for our neighbors, co-workers, family members. We cover the light. Maybe there's, there's other reasons. We're just too busy. I have other things I need to do. But none of those Excuses negate this command to be light. And whenever we cover the light of Christ within us, whenever we we refrain from obeying this command, we are being unfaithful to Christ. Whenever we shrink back for whatever reason, 
We are not being true to what Christ is calling us to be. And this is a, a clear and, and sobering command. And it, it's not just mentioned here. I would invite you to, to turn with me to, to Ephesians chapter 5. Where the, the Apostle Paul is going to, to build upon the teaching of Christ. And he's going to apply it to the church in Ephesus and also to us. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes this. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So what are we supposed to do? Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. See, we have a calling to walk as children of light. We have been given this command. If we are walking as children of light, what are we going to do in the world around us? We are going to expose what's taking place. We are going to make visible what's going on in the lives and hearts and minds of those around us. And even as we see here, as we walk as children of light, we, are, we have been made that way, not in our own strength, in our own power, in our own wisdom, but the light that is in us is really the light of Christ. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we are now in the light of Christ. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. So we are not light sources in and of ourselves. We are not like the stars. We are like the moon. We just reflect the light from a greater light source. That's all that we can do. But we must do that faithfully. And after the, the command back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, we see what should be the result of our shining as lights in the darkness of this world. What should be evident as we are living as 
salt and living as light is that we are only reflecting the light of Christ. And how is that evident? Because what, what does Jesus say at the end of verse 16? That in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In all of this, if we're functioning as salt and light, who gets the glory? Not us, but God. And again, that's where that connection, that, that I'm only reflecting the light of Christ. So we don't point to ourselves. We don't go trumpet our good works, our good deeds. We point to Jesus. That is what we are called to do. To glorify God. That is the purpose of our being salt and light. But I want to think, think briefly about how this applies to us. These two principles. Because again, that you, that is plural, y'all, each and every one of us, everyday ordinary Christians, are called to be salt and light. Not just professors and academics or pastors, but each and every one of us. Ordinary Christians are called to be light shining in the darkness, to be light or salt preserving and purifying the world around us. We also need to consider the order of these statements. Because Jesus intentionally said, you are salt, before he said that you are light. And the emphasis upon the salt is who we are. What does our life look like? Okay, and then, if our life is demonstrating that we are following Jesus, then we can shine as light. But you can think of it this way. If you are not salty, you are not shiny. Okay? The, the saltiness must come first. Because if you are proclaiming something that you're not living, that's a sure way to repel people from Christ. To, to push them away from the church. To push them away from you. Your life needs to line up with everything that you are proclaiming. And we must live differently from the culture around us so that we can be salt and light to them. We must put the beauty of the gospel on display with our lives and with our words. Because that's another error of, well, I'll just be salt and I won't say anything. I won't shine as light. No, we need to live out the gospel and we need to speak the gospel. We need to proclaim humanity's sinfulness, God's holiness, the, the loveliness of Christ and all that he came to do and to be, to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to rise from the grave so that all who look to him in faith are rescued, reconciled, and redeemed are given newness of life in Him. And as citizens in Christ's kingdom, we are commanded to do this. We are commanded to be preservatives in a fallen world and to shine as lights in the darkness. It's our clear responsibility. But how does all of this relate back to our, our series on the social justice revolution that we've been, been working through? Well, throughout history, whenever a, 
a hostile, non-biblical worldview has gained widespread influence in a culture. Uh, the, the church uh, and Christians in that culture usually have three options of how to respond. Okay? And the first option uh, is for the church and for those Christians to conform to the ideology of the world around them. That they immediately embrace whatever uh, the culture of the day is proclaiming. And as a result, the church quickly distances itself from, from Orthodox Christianity. And even uh, we're seeing that right now as, uh, as pastors, as uh, worship leaders of, of large uh, popular Christian bands, uh, are when they're asked about homosexuality, they're suddenly, well, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're hemming and hawing uh, and, and they're embracing the ideas and the teaching of the culture rather than sticking with biblical orthodoxy. And oftentimes this is, this is motivated uh, by a desire to, uh, for self-preservation. And, and what's said is that, well, if the church uh, doesn't, uh, conform to the culture. We're going to be irrelevant. We're not going to be able to to speak to anyone uh, or, or deal with the issues of the day. And so we have to become uh, like the world or we'll just be marginalized and, and weakened. That was the, the mindset of several controversies that I've talked about in the past several weeks ago. I mentioned the, the modernist and fundamentalist controversy back in the early 20th century. Uh, that, that led uh, J. Gresham Machen to write uh, the book Christianity and Liberalism, where he makes it very clear, no, these are not two branches of Christianity. This is uh, Christianity and a whole other religion. It was those modernists that, that said, hey, if, if we don't begin to em- embrace all of the ideas of the culture, we're just going to be irrelevant. And in this first option... The church willingly chooses to disobey the command that we looked at today. The church says, well, maybe we shouldn't be salt. Maybe we shouldn't shine as light. Let's just cover the light. Let's lose our, our distinction from the world. So the church makes a conscious decision not to be what Christ has commanded us to be. It conforms. The second option that, that churches and, and Christians have is to accommodate the, the, the cultural ideology of their time. And, and what the difference is between this and the first one, uh, to conform to the culture is you immediately embrace all that it's teaching and all that it's proclaiming. But this accommodation uh, is done unintentionally over a longer period of time. Uh, and rather than one big decision to depart from biblical orthodoxy, it's a series of small decisions. And the new ideology changes the culture so rapidly that it, that it washes over Christians and churches without them even being aware that it has infiltrated and, and directed them elsewhere. And there's not necessarily a, a conscious desire when we begin to accommodate the teaching of the culture around us. Not a conscious desire to, uh, to abandon the Bible, but again, a series of small assumptions are embraced. We talked about presuppositions and how those support uh, our understanding of the world around us. And if the church adopts the presuppositions of the culture's teaching, we will eventually end up becoming just like the culture. 
It won't happen overnight. It'll happen over a longer period of time. And in this option, the church loses its saltiness gradually over time. Its light slowly goes out, little by little. They lose their ministry in the world. Which again, that's what's promised uh, as Jesus writes to the seven churches in Revelation. Say, if you don't address the things that are going on, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove your witness as a church. That is what happens when we accommodate. But then this third option for the church is to resist the reigning ideology of the culture. The church sees the threat. They, they see uh, the differences between what the culture is proclaiming and what Scripture says. And they're willing to hold fast to the Bible, no matter what the cost is. And, and resistance leads to open confrontation with the culture. And in many cases, resistance will lead uh, Christians to disengage completely. Right? Anyone else felt the, the desire to, to pack up and move into the mountains? Just to leave everything else behind. Like, I think we could do that. We could make it. I've never really gone camping before, but we could do it this time. Uh, right? We, we have that temptation. Right? Let's just leave and abandon all of this. But what we see here in this passage in Matthew, that if we were to all do that, all the Christians in the Treasure Valley packed up and moved into the woods, what would happen? We would not be salt. And we would not be light. We have to keep these things in mind. That if we are going to resist the, the cultural current, that doesn't mean that we completely disengage. That we also begin to, uh, to be apologetic. We, we defend our beliefs and reason and confront the culture with all that it is proclaiming. Salt that is in a container by itself will not preserve anything. And again, light covered under a basket and will not shine where it is needed most. And this scenario of ideologies that are coming to, to oppose and be hostile to Christianity, this is, again, nothing new. The New Testament was written in a culture that was hostile to Christianity. And this whole thing that we're experiencing right now has played itself out multiple times and in multiple places, even in just in the 20th century. As I mentioned, the fundamentalist and modernist debate uh, but also in, in 1920s and 1930s Germany. It's amazing to, to read the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And what he says uh, is that the, the Christian church in Germany began to have swastikas up behind the, the preacher. They began to adopt the ideology of their culture rather than being distinct from it. And what began to happen in uh, Nazi Germany was it became very clear which churches were going to go along with the program and which were not. And what became known as the confessing church, the ones who were going to, to remain steadfast to Scripture and to Christ, well, they, they were slowly rounded up and arrested, taken to camps, placed into prison. Some of them survived, but many, many of them did not. That's what we have to begin to, to examine our hearts. What is it that we are going to do in response to this, this worldview that is growing ever more hostile towards Christ and His church? 
Each one of us is going to have to answer this question. How are we going to respond? Are we going to conform? Are we just going to take the easy route? Well, I can avoid persecution if I just immediately adopt this idea. Are we going to accommodate? Is it going to be a slow turning of our hearts away from Christ and towards uh, an easier life by going along with the culture? Or are we willing to to stand firm? Are we willing to, to resist the culture and engage the culture, not just withdraw from it? That is what we are called and commanded to do. We must be salt and light. How we respond to this ideology of social justice is exactly the same way that we should have been responding to the world uh, our entire Christian lives. We remain steadfast as salt and light. But that conviction must be, uh, I guess, rededicated in our hearts each and every day as we go to converse with others, as we go into our workplace. Of Am I willing to stand for Christ today? Lord, give us that strength to be faithful. Amen?